1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, the legendary G. Edward Griffin discusses the United Nations and one world government.
2: Uh, Adam Weishaupt said that the way to control large groups of people, and certainly the way to control the world, is through a structure that he described as rings within rings within rings.
0: C60 Evo's miracle molecule ESS60 makes a great gift for your friends family and their pets why not give the gift of radiant health to everyone on your list ESS60 from C60 Evo is the purest form of C60 take ESS60 for increased strength flexibility immunity and better sleep you know the mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking it for a year now a tablespoon full every morning and we've never felt better never slept better. No aches, no pains. We're mentally focused and sharp. Is it any wonder? This antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and super antioxidant is 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. You heard me right, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. To order your bottle of ESS60 from C60 Evo, go to the episode notes for this podcast or click on the banner ad for C60 Evo at the bottom of my website, strangeplanet.ca. And now, until the end of the year, you can take 15% off your order with the coupon code JOLLY15RS. JOLLY15RS. That's jolly 15 15 rs the coupon's not valid for cases or subscriptions and cannot be used with any other coupon code valid through december 31st 2020 again to order your miracle molecule in a bottle go to the episode notes for this podcast or go to my website strangeplanet.ca scroll down to the bottom and click on the c60 evo banner this product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, treat, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please contact your healthcare provider.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of her supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Monday. And to my American listeners, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving long weekend. I also hope you had a chance... To listen in as I hosted Coast to Coast AM this past Friday and Saturday, and of course, my own weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, on Sunday night. I had a busy weekend. And because I was working all weekend long, I decided to go through my vast vault of material for today's episode. And this is a conversation I had about eight years ago, maybe longer, uh, with author researcher G. Edward Griffin. And we discussed a book he wrote back in the early 1970s called The Fearful Master a second look at the United Nations. And again, although this is an older interview, it's very timely, given everything that's going on right now. Hope you enjoy. G. Edward Griffin, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Uh, Well, thank you, uh, Richard. I'm very well.
0: You've been at this a very long time. When and where did it all start for you?
2: Um, I started becoming aware of these things in about 1959, and by 1960, I was in full swing, and my first book was on the United Nations, called The Fearful Master, you mentioned that, and, um, and of course that was very much a part of my life for a few years thereafter, and then I got into these other topics, some of which you mentioned, and uh, strangely enough, uh, there hasn't been enough uh, or a lot of interest in the original theme of the United Nations until recently. And so I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to go back to that topic because I think it's one of the more important ones of them all. The main theme of my book, The Fearful Master, is that uh, the United Nations isn't at all what it appears to be. That's that's so true of so many things in our world today. It's certainly true of the U.N. I know back in the 1960s when I was going around telling people that the U.N. was not our last best hope for peace, like, you know, we all learned in school, um, I was met with uh, some very uh, uh, chilling opposition because people thought I was attacking, you know, a great institution, the great concept of international brotherhood, and they thought that made me automatically a warmonger and, you know, all other things. But... um, And the main the main problem I have with the United Nations is that uh, people don't look at the real UN; they look at the mythological UN. You know, I have to tell you right up front: I have no problem with the concept of world government Um, if it was the right kind of world government, if it was the kind of a system that guaranteed individual rights and protected. Personal liberties and protected the individual against, uh, you know, the mob, against the majority, and all that sort of thing. If it uh, guaranteed people the right to freedom of speech and all of the guarantees we used to have in our own federal constitution, uh, that would be fine. Uh, but that's not what's really down there in New York today. It's not that kind of a international brotherhood at all. It's the building of a new world order, as these people like to call it. It's a a world government, true, but it's based on the model of collectivism, which means it's it's not there to protect the people, uh, but to control the people. The typical, uh, you know, we used to think in this country that the purpose of our, our government was to protect us, to protect our lives, liberty, and our property, as it says in the Declaration of Independence. You know, when in the course of human events, it's time to break with the the mother country, and then men institute governments to protect their liberties. Well, that was all clear for a long time, but of course, in the last hundred years, that system has been eroded. So that now the pyramids turned around, and the government is there not to protect the people, but to control the people. And the people no longer tell the government what to do, but the government tells the people what to do. And that's the kind of a, of a system that they are building in New York at the United Nations. It's a, a, build, it's a system of collectivism, and um, and it's, it, it, if people really understood it, they wouldn't like it at all. So what I'll be talking about uh, in Toronto is that general theme. I'll be giving plenty of examples and illustrations, and um, I think it... I think it's going to come as a shock to many people who still still are thinking that the UN is a you know some kind of a, a international brotherhood of some kind.
0: Before the United Nations there was the League of Nations after the First World War. Why did the architects of the United Nations think that the UN would succeed where the where the League of Nations failed?
2: Well the literature on that is pretty clear uh, The the people that Created the United Nations, as you mentioned, were actively involved in trying to create the, the very same thing at the end of World War One, called the League of Nations. It was the same group, basically. The same, uh, New World Order people. They had this long range view of building the, you know, in- international government based on the model of collectivism way back then. And they, to a large extent, they were, uh, uh they were instrumental in, uh, making sure that the war, World War One was as long and as gruesome as possible. Uh, Some of these people uh, here in the United States operating through uh, the various uh, non-profit organizations like the uh, Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace, for example, uh, they actually drafted resolutions uh, to do everything they could with their influence at high levels of in government to keep the war going not to you know not to end the war keep it going why because they wanted the terror of war and the destruction of war to be on the minds of people so that when it finally ended they would be ready ready to change their culture change their system make drastic changes to the American way so that we wouldn't have to go through war again so they wanted to use the terror of war as as a like a battering ram uh, against the consciousness of the American people, so they would be so afraid of more war that they would accept almost anything uh, as long as it was sold as a means of preventing another war. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically what happened, uh, what they tried to make happen, but uh, when it was all over, the, the American people still weren't buying it. And so there wasn't uh, all the politicians or the major politicians were for it, but the the folks back home weren't buying it. They said, no, we don't want to surrender our sovereignty. We don't want to let other nations of the world tell us what to do and what is right and what is wrong and to levy taxes on us and all that sort of thing. No. So um, the 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 planners uh, were very disillusioned by that. They thought they really had it made. And so they resolved right away after that when when the League of Nations fell through because of basically a lack of of popular support at the grassroots level. They started right to work again. They said, okay, we've got to do this again and we'll just keep doing it again and again until people are so fed up with war that they'll finally give up their sovereignty and give up their cherished uh, way of life. And they'll say it'll be worth it. And um, this is all pretty well documented. And um, so anyway, to answer your question, the, the American people uh, were hit with the battering ram of World War I, but apparently it wasn't enough to, to knock knock down the structures of our, of our traditions. They still were standing, and so they failed to get uh, the United States to participate in that.
0: Implicit in your books and your, your point of view is the idea that we are presented with an official version of historical events like 9-11 or the JFK assassination or the real purpose of the United Nations. And then there's another version that people like you uncover. Who are the gatekeepers? Who's responsible for formulating the official version or the
2: lie? Well, that's a good question. And I have to start off by saying I don't really know if there is a, a, a one entity or a sort of a, an alliance of um, entities or groupings of people, I suspect it's more the latter. But uh, my own research leads me to uh, focus on one one particular group, which is more dominant in the Western world. And interestingly enough, it's a group that doesn't have a name. It was formed by Cecil Rhodes. And as I think everybody knows who he was, one of the wealthiest men in the world, dominated the, uh, the diamond mines and, and the gold fields of South Africa. And, uh, but what they don't know is that he created a secret society. And uh, we know a lot about that secret society today because um, it, it was written, uh, the, the whole history of it was written by a rather well-known historian by the name of Professor Carol Quigley, He used to be a a professor at Georgetown University. He wrote a couple of books on it, big, thick books, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment were two of his monumental works in which he detailed the origin of this secret society and what they accomplished and uh, still continue to accomplish. One of the startling revelations is that this secret society still exists, when, when Cecil Rhodes died, uh, he devoted his entire fortune to the funding of this uh, secret society. And um, we, we know a lot about it because of, of what Professor Quigley wrote in his books, and also from uh, Rhodes himself, who wrote extensively on it, and also uh, from a, a fellow by the name of William Stead, who was, or Steed, I never did find out how you pronounce that, S-T-E-A-D, but uh, he was the executor of uh, Cecil Rhodes' estate, and he wrote a book on all of this. So we we have very uh, solid sources of information that Cecil Rhodes wanted to create, and did in fact create, a secret society without a name, and he didn't want anybody to talk about it, so he figured if we don't have a name, you can't very well talk about it. And even Quigley himself, when he was writing about it, it referred to it as the Rhodes Group or the organization mm-hmm. it doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. Well, we do know that the uh, that Cecil Rhodes consciously built this organization on the or the structural principles established by Adam Weishaupt uh, when he formed the Illuminati. Well, we all have been told that the Illuminati no longer exists. It was at one time very powerful in, in Europe but that when it was exposed in Bavaria, um, that, uh, you know, all its members were arrested and the organization was uh, shattered and went out of existence. Some people think it went just went underground and developed elsewhere in other forms. I don't think it's important that we know the answer to that. We do know that people like Cecil Rhodes either continued it or consciously copied it. Because he said he did. (laughs) And one of the things I'm getting to here is that uh, Adam Weissop said that the way to control large groups of people, and certainly the way to control the world, is through a structure that he described as rings within rings within rings, meaning that in the center of this uh, conspiratorial group, that's what what it was, they called it that, uh, there would be just one or two or three people who would dominate, and then they would recruit around them a ring of other uh, members to form another group by a different name and maybe 12 or 20 and they wouldn't know that there were three maybe in the center of that that were running the show but then that outer group of say 12 or 20 would then form another organization a ring around it that might have you know several hundred or a thousand and those people would think they're the whole enchilada without realizing that they were being controlled and directed by by this inner ring, and so on outward, until finally you get out to the large masses of society, like political parties would be formed, and those would be big rings of many, many thousands, if not millions of members, and they wouldn't have the slightest idea that they were being controlled by an inner ring, which was controlled by still one more inner ring which was controlled by still one more inner ring. Well, that was the rings-within-rings concept that Adam Weissup uh, uh, created so well, and he wrote about it. You can read Adam Weissup's own words uh, in those papers that were confiscated there in the London Library. And Cecil Rhodes, in his own memoirs, said that he consciously selected that style of structure for his secret society. So, um, what he did, and, and uh, this is where Quigley comes into it so well with his historical excellence, he details how the, uh, one of the rings, about the third ring out, uh, were, was called the, um, the round tables. They called them round tables. And those, in turn, uh, created an outer ring around them. Which in each of the countries, uh, the, the former countries of the former British uh, dependency countries, were called um, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And they're still there. You can go to, you know, Canada, you can go to Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, and you can look up on the telephone directory. Oh, you know, you know, there's the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's in London, of course. But in the United States, they decided not to use that name because they figured the American people were not interested in royalty. They didn't want the word royal. Uh, It had a negative connotation here. So they changed the name here, and they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's the same outer ring of a roundtable, which is part of the Cecil Rhodes Secret Society. So now we we realize that the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, with about 4,200 members, something like that, relatively small, Organization actually controls this country. Uh, they, those people are in the key positions of all of the major power centers of society. They, they control the political parties, they, they, their people are in control of the major channels of communication, the major networks ABC, CBS, NBC, Turner, you know, um, Murdoch uh, Network, uh, Murdoch is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. You just go through, down the line, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, it's all there. Every one of the major channels are in the hands of these people on the Council on Foreign Relations. Key positions in government, senators, most of the presidents of the United States since uh, Woodrow Wilson have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations or very close to it. Or, you know, they're, they're key people. When they appoint people to go uh, to head up cabinet posts, like uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, you look at those names, Council on Foreign Relations, high percentage. Well, by that I mean 70% or higher.
0: Would it be fair to say that one cannot rise to the level of prime minister or president unless you are an affirmed globalist?
2: i would say that's a, a correct appraisal yeah because these people have an agenda this isn't just uh, like an employment agency where they're you know uh, promoting each other you don't even get into these circles unless you have an agenda unless you have an outlook and that outlook is as i mentioned before you've got to favor this new world order you've got to be a collectivist you have to think that that's the correct uh, form of society that the group should be suck i mean the, the group is more important than the individual that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good or the greater number. If you believe that and you can dedicate your life to that principle, then you're okay. Also, you have to be a little bit ruthless, too. If you meet those two tests, you have a good chance of being recruited into this network.
0: Why choose the UN as the vehicle to usher in one world government, given that most of the member states can't seem to agree on much of anything?
2: They didn't choose it; they created it. It wasn't there that they had to look around and say, "Which one do we want?" They created that specifically to their specifications. It was created by collectivists with a globalist point of view. Many of the people right after the war, now, 43, 44, 45, when all of this was happening, they were uh, closely affiliated with the communist network. In fact, that we had a lot of. People in the State Department and the United States, who although they were American citizens, we learned later that they were actually members of the Communist Party, and they were uh, their real affinity and loyalty was to uh, Mother Russia, even though they were American citizens. We had a lot of those people, and and, and the ones that drafted the UN Charter, people like uh, Alger Hiss, he was very active in that in his department. You look at all those people whose names you see on the staff of the. Uh, of that particular group within the State Department that drafted the U.N. um, charter, you'd be surprised at the high number of members of the Communist Party that were there. But that wasn't all. Uh, They they were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And actually, in, in some cases, like Alger Hiss, he was a member of both groups. He was a secret communist agent and also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. But the one common thing, whether they'd be collectivists on the right or collectivists on the left is that they were collectivists. They wanted this all-powerful government controlled from the top.
0: But look at the U.N. General Assembly, for example. It's like a free-for-all. It's hard to imagine that the member states could find enough common ground to form a one-world government.
2: Well, I I don't know that... um, I'm I'm a little bit out of my league here To say that that is uh, They they don't worry about it too much I think it's part of like the show that's put on Uh, When you look at the uh, The contest here in the United States Between the Republican Party And the Democrat Party uh, You think, God, these people really Are are at each other's throats, right? Well, yeah But it's not on principle They don't disagree on principle very much They just disagree on who's going to be king That's all and I think when you look at the U.N. General Assembly or even the Security Council, you find that all those, these people are, are competing with each other and have a lot of disagreement. They don't disagree on principle. They just disagree on alignment, which is it going to be the Leninist group or the Rhodesian group. And that's what we're talking about here at the U.N. There's two groups there, on the left and on the right. The Rhodesians are considered to be on the right and the Leninists on the left, and they're competing not because they don't want world government. They both agree they do. They're just competing to see who's going to who's going to control it, which side. So I think if you look at the the basis of the of the conflict at the UN, you find it's it's just a, a struggle for power. But on principle, they're all united.
0: More of my conversation with G. Edward Griffin when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Let's get Colleen Ferguson here. She's the manager of our full script dispensary at StrangePlanet.ca. Hey Colleen, how are you? I'm wonderful, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. But we're heading into cold and flu season. What do we have at Full Script to help people support their respiratory health? We have a product called ViraCare. It's by a manufacturer called Patient One. And this product is designed to be used when you feel a cold coming on. So it's not a daily support, but it's something you wanna have available in your cabinet when you start to feel not your best. You take a concentrated dose over an initial 12 hour period. And then the next day you take a smaller dose, but it's to knock out anything that might be trying to, you know, attack your immune system and to give it a big boost. Fantastic. ViraCare to support your respiratory health, go to strangeplanet.ca, click on the full script dispensary button. There's a 10% discount on all the products there and free delivery on all orders over $50. Thanks again, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. Take care. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett, the author of *The Creature from
0: Jekyll Island* and *The Fearful Master*. A second look at the United Nations. G. Edward Griffin is here, and we're talking about the UN's plan for one world government. Tensions in the Middle East seem to be on the rise again, particularly between Iran, Israel, and the United States. Are these conflicts ginned up by the architects of the New World Order in order to make the case for one world government?
2: Definitely, that's partly the case, yes. But I add the word partly because I think there are other motives for the war. I think it has to do with oil, (laughs) has to do with dominance, has to do with the creation of the American Empire and the expansion of the American Empire, but the uh, I think that the factor that you're discussing is also a very real thing. That uh, another war would probably just be more than the world could bear, and they would probably say, "We've had it. I don't care. Take my freedom. Take my home. Tell me where to work. Give me a place to live." Uh, you know. Tell me who to marry, what to, who to think, uh, what to think, and who my friends would be. Just do all of that. Just no more war. And these people have thought about that. They're master psychologists. So I worry a lot about it because I think it might work. I think that the average uh, person who doesn't have any knowledge of what we're talking about would certainly be easy prey for something like that. So I guess the short answer to your question is that it's yes, but there are there are probably several factors involved uh, with the what looks like a, a looming war ahead, uh, but that certainly is one of the big ones.
0: How do they keep their plans for one world government out of the press, out of public discourse?
2: Uh, I think they can keep this under wraps for several reasons. First of all, they don't keep it under wraps. It's just that when they talk about it, they, they present it in such a reasonable way, and they use phrases and code words that uh, they don't really describe it the way we do you know when we when we talk about controlling the people from the top down that's really what it is but they don't say we want to control the people they say we we just want a more sane society we want rational people making rational decisions and you know by the time they're through describing the same thing uh, if you're not really listening too carefully you'll say yeah i'll vote for that (laughs) you know so first of all it's not really under wraps if you look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, the part that is not, that you wouldn't want, uh, if you were on that side, that you wouldn't want the people getting alarmed about, for example, the creation of uh, the North American Union, which has been going on very rapidly here, the, the merging of the United States, Mexico, and Canada, they just simply don't talk about it publicly.
0: Give me your thoughts on UN Agenda 21 or Agenda 23rd, Agenda 2030 and, and how it fits into One World Government.
2: Well, Agenda 21 is kind of a title to a large program that was developed in the United Nations based on the proposal that in order to preserve the planet, and we're back to this environmentalist theme here, Agenda 21, which really means the agenda for the 21st century, it was a proposal of how to use the issue of environmentalism and protecting the planet, and sustainable development, and fighting global warming, and increasing food supplies, and all of this sort of thing, which is you know very appealing. Uh, all of those all of those things are appealing, and the, the people have a strong emotional attachment to them. But the Agenda 21 was a program to use those supposed goals as an excuse for taking away uh, the uh, the rights of individuals, especially property rights, and uh, they they make no bones about it. There have been documents, there are 1,000-page documents available at the United Nations, and people have written about it, uh, also who are very close to it and who endorse it, by the way, and while while people weren't looking here in the United States, uh, the Agenda 21 has been... Slowly been implemented. It's it's been filtered down, especially to the county levels, in almost every county in America. And you walk into the county uh, offices there, and all of the little bureaucrats at the county are all buzzed with Agenda 21. They want to regulate property rights. They want to restrict the number of roads and they're going to tear out old roads they're going to they're going to restore the land to its pristine state they're going to uh, put regulations on the use of water they're going to put regulations on the use of building regulations on uh, commerce all in the name of you know preserving and restoring the environment and, and people think oh well they just focus on the environment side. isn't that wonderful but they don't realize that what's the, the other other side of that coin is that gradually they're taking the property away from the individuals who own it uh, if if you can't get to your property because they tore the road out for example that property's not much good for you if you can't uh, put a building on your property uh, then you don't you just walk away from it because you have no use for it you you don't want to pay taxes on a, on a piece of property you can't put a building on or if they're going to say you can't use the water that comes out of your well because that really belongs to the planet or belongs to the people or whatever, well, what good is a piece of property if you don't have water and so forth? So short of actually um, taking the property, what Agenda 21 is involved in is putting so many restrictions and regulations and taxes on property in the name of the environment that uh, they're literally... Uh, moving people out of the of the rural areas and out of the suburban areas, which they say they want to do, and get them all into the cities. And uh, the the excuse is, of course, preserving the environment. But what the real goal is, they want people crammed into high-rise structures. They want them on public transportation. They don't want them independent. They don't want them to have independent food and water. They want them dependent on the state for everything. So they, that's really what Agenda 21 is, and the first time I heard that, I thought, no, oh, it, it's not possible. But once I got hold of the documents and I read it in the words of the planners themselves, uh, yeah, then I became convinced.
0: I read years ago that media mogul Ted Turner was buying up hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness in the United States and his intention was to hand that over to the UN for the purpose of UN Agenda 21, part of uh, implementing these wilderness corridors throughout the United States. Is that true?
2: I don't know about that. Uh, I know that uh, people like Maurice Strong have been buying up a lot of property uh, in Canada and in the United States, but I don't think they really had original plans to uh, turn that over to the the government. I think they just wanted to exploit the land and maybe uh, derive some pretty good profits out of the water that's underneath that land.
0: Do the architects of Agenda 21 see the United States as the the principal obstacle to implementing a one-world government?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, the uh, collectivists that dominate the United Nations and the collectivists that dominate the federal government... And the collectivists that dominate the state governments and the collectivists who dominate the local governments, including the county governments, see the American people, especially if they're landholders, if they're property owners, they see them as the enemy because they have been taught that, uh, you know, the distribution of wealth is the proper thing, that nobody should have more than anybody else. In other words, they're, they're total collectivists. And so they look at people who have saved their money or perhaps inherited their money, and they have some property, and they think, that's not right. Now, we got to get them off of their property. we got to take that property from them, but that's not very popular, so we got to find some excuse for doing it that is popular, and that's where Agenda 21.
0: It sounds like you're saying that the idea of liberty is pretty much an illusion.
2: Well, yes, to a large extent, I think that's correct. It's, I know when I was growing up, I had a pretty false view of what the system was like here in, in America. You know, I'm like everybody else. I was, you know, red, white, and blue. And I remember the stories of the founding fathers and the Revolutionary War and the great principles of the Revolution and the and the principles that were written into the Constitution. And I thought it was still that way. <laughs> and here it was. I, I was growing up in the middle of uh, World War II, and I didn't realize that starting with World War I, They had already knocked a big chunk out of all of that, but they, they left the surface, uh, while they were gutting out the inside. They were changing over the real nature of this country, but they left the surface there. They left the flag on top of the flagpole. They still, you know, sang this star spangled banner and everybody got that goose bumpy feeling and they, you know, a lot of patriotism going around, but they didn't realize that meanwhile we were becoming almost exactly like the very regimes we were fighting. We were becoming collectivists in order to fight collectivism. I mean, let's face it, uh, Nazism, communism are ultimate forms of collectivism. And here we were adopting collectivism here in America in the name of fighting Nazism and communism. And we were becoming just like them. And I didn't realize all that was going on until much, much later. And I think still a lot of people are in that sort of uh, state of denial.
0: If they're going to institute a one-world government, they're going to have to first disarm the citizenry of the United States. How do they plan on doing that?
2: (laughs) There are are several approaches to that. The United Nations is now uh, promoting a treaty. The treaty would basically disarm Americans of small arms. It would be against the law to have them, unless you have a permit and, of course, people who are like, Maybe you and I might not get a permit because we would be considered as uh, dissidents and dangerous people, that kind of thing. And another way to disarm the American people, and it's underway right now, is if you can't take their guns, just make it impossible for them to get ammunition. (laughs) And uh, so now ammunition is getting very, very hard to obtain. There are a lot of rules and regulations. Not that you can't buy it, it's just that it's getting almost impossible to buy it. So between those two methods of direct illegalization of it and uh, making ammunition very difficult and too expensive to get, that's how they plan to do it.
0: What would the military wing of one world government look like? What, what would the UN have a, a large standing army, for example?
2: Well, ultimately, they have to. But if they're smart, and I think they're very smart, they'll probably uh, just use the existing armies, but they'll be internationalized. You know, when the United States fought in the Korean War, uh, they were really fighting under the United Nations flag. And uh, when we go into uh, uh, military um, confrontations around the world, quite often, if you read the lines in the newspaper, in between the lines at least, you see, hey, these troops, even though they're American troops or Canadian troops or troops from, from, from uh, France... They're really under international control. They're really already uh, armies of the United Nations, and I think that's the, probably the way, this, the wise way for them to do it. Because if they send in, you know, the blue helmets and they've got the United Nations emblem painted on the sides of their of their tanks and their helmets, that's going to upset people. But you know, if they bring in American troops, you know, then they're here to restore order, supposedly. Then nobody's so up quite so upset.
0: I remember Jim Mars telling me once that during the Korean War, the UN forces were being directed by the same Russian general who was also directing the North Korean forces, the same general ruling both sides of the conflict. Is that true? Yes,
2: yeah, that's absolutely true. I checked into that at the time. Up until about that time, the United Nations under Secretary General for in- Internal and Security Council Affairs, I think it was called, or something very much like that. Um, It was a long title for basically the uh, uh, Secretary of Defense for the UN. And uh, up until about that time, uh, all of those positions have always been held by by Russians or somebody from one of the Iron Curtain countries. There was about 20 of them in a row. Well, I found out that that's because there was one of the agreements that was made uh, when the United Nations Charter was uh, signed, the United States and other countries agreed that in order to entice Russia into the, into the arrangement, they had to allow Russia to hold that very important military position. Well, they don't do that anymore, but that's the way it was for the first uh, 20 years or so.
0: If this is true, the same general running both sides, that's a pretty sick game, wouldn't you say?
2: Well, I'm not so sure that he was running the North Korean side, but he certainly was uh, in communication with them, and uh, he could certainly let the North Korean generals know in a heartbeat exactly what the uh, American forces were going to do, because the American forces had to report to him and get his permission before they could do anything.
0: So what do you suppose is the timeline for implementing all of this?
2: To be perfectly honest with you, I think it's already here. It's not a question of, will it arrive on February 12th some year at noon? They'll ring the bell and say, all right, the New World Order is here. They've been building it brick by brick for a long, long time. And every week that goes by is another tier of bricks that are added to it. I think, in all honesty, we have to say we're already substantially in the New World Order. It's not complete but it's getting very close to it.
0: Ed, thanks for this. I look forward to speaking with you again soon, I hope.
2: Richard, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier. And a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me, and all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange patreon.com forward slash Coming up next time, Steve Harris, the author of America's Secret History, drops by one last time to discuss the deep state and the financial collapse of 2009 and the rise of Donald Trump. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com your mind that is all for now oh and remember to share and give a 5 star review because we have huge egos and need love we're like cats we need we need constant petting